Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world, all on the hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. And welcome to the hash. How are you guys doing today? Looking good. We got David Morris, Tyrone Ross, and Sam Kessler kicking it off this morning. I think we're starting off with Tyrone and central banks. Pretty interesting story out of the BIS. Interesting and gross, if I'm being honest, but nine out of 10 central banks are looking at developing a digital currency. I'm really not a fan of this, but I am a fan for this reason. So one of the things that they did mention part of the report is they are looking at this for two things. One, domestic retail efficiency and also financial inclusion. If you know me, you know that I'm big on crypto for financial inclusion. And zoom in on me, please, if there's a camera somewhere so everyone understands this. There's one inarguable use case for crypto assets. And it is that for the underserved, not only in the United States of America, where people seem to avoid, but worldwide. Inarguable. I'm happy to argue that with anybody. But I think what a central bank digital currency does, if you have another pandemic and you want to airdrop money to people, they're not waiting for a check in the mail. And they are not throwing out the debit cards that they sent them. You're able to send them that money in real time. Now their life isn't disrupted. The rent is paid. The light stays on. And you can force them to stay in the house for weeks if you want. So I think that part of central bank digital currencies is fantastic. Outside of that, it's completely useless. But I digress. David, what say you? Ah, thanks for the handoff. And great to see you, Tyrone. I don't think we've talked in a few years. So this is a wild reunion. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think we're all kind of on the same page in terms of CBDCs. China has provided, I think, a warning sign slash blueprint. If you're handing the power to create a CBDC over to a central bank, the risk of them using it to control people by monitoring their transactions and activity is really huge, unless you have some really strong civil society organizations overseeing the development of those systems to make sure that they're set up in a way that can't be misused. My role here sometimes is to be a wingnut, and so I'm going to be a wingnut for a second and point out the irony of this report coming from the Bank for International Settlements, which, you know, I won't go into too much detail, but played a serious role in funding Hitler's rise to power in Germany and subsequently the Holocaust. So when we're talking about the post-war trend towards control of populations by giving more power to governments, they're in the catbird seat. They really know what they're talking about. I'll just honestly leave it at that. CBDCs are generally not great. 
let's actually throw it down to Sam. I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but we have a new co-host slash guest here, Sam Kessler, who is uh, one of our great reporters for Layer 2. Sam, you want to chime in? What do you think? Thank you. It's interesting on a you know few different levels. I think both of you mentioned a couple of them. I, maybe taking a step back a little bit, have been thinking a bunch about stablecoins and the different ways that they manifest. Recently, David, I know you've been thinking about this as well. We've been talking a lot about algorithmic stablecoins. Mm-hmm. So there is this broader context where you talk about why there is demand for this sort of stable token. There are plenty of reasons why you need them. Central bank stablecoins do make sense from that standpoint. You might need some sort of regulation there in order to make sure we don't see things like we might start to see with some of these less stable algorithmic stable coins. But at the same time, this might not be the best way to go about it. So I am curious. I see why the demand might be there, but that's all to say. I don't know if this is the best Mm. tact to go down. Yeah, I'll pick it up from there. I think this is interesting pairing it off Bitcoin story that we see in El Salvador, the Central African Republic and elsewhere. The CBDC case is like, hey, we want to make a central bank digital dollar that can control the economy, that can protect the economy from ups and downs and gives us more granular control over what our citizens are spending money on. And you don't always have to go into like the very dark case of the the consequences for that. You can even just go a little bit over to one side and be like, this probably isn't good because we want our citizens to have more freedom and control over like their sovereign money. You don't have to go all the way into government's going to start blacklisting people, government's going to stop uh, enabling people to move, to, to buy things. You can just go into, I don't like that economic argument. On the other side, you have Bitcoin, which is a self-sovereign money that is quickly monetizing through markets as opposed to government mandate. And you have these two things clashing in real time. This is the same thing people were talking about years ago. And it's fascinating to see it play out on the main stage. So El Salvador is President Bukele is actually was in Mexico this week meeting with the president of Mexico. And a lot of people are speculating on Twitter probably incorrectly, but let's just throw it out there, that he might be talking about Mexico adopting Bitcoin or or at least like pitching it. Bukele is a Bitcoiner, so he's going to talk about it wherever he goes. So what we're seeing here is things that people were talking about years ago, and those people were laughed at. They were saying, that's never going to happen. You're never going to have this Bitcoin world versus the CBDC world battle it out. But that's what we're living in right now. And that's what we're talking about right now. So it is pretty fascinating to see that happen. And honestly, pretty good time to be alive. Uh, Let's say with the same sort of conversation, a little bit to the side with relation and move over to BitMEX. So BitMEX co-founder Arthur Hayes, along with two others, executives at BitMEX or former executives at BitMEX have been charged. They're expected to pay $10 million each uh, for their role in breaking the Bank Secrecy Act. BitMEX got slapped back down in 2020 with a $100 million fine and uh, basically was forced to close a lot of its trading movement because of the Bank Secrecy Act and the CFTC was going after them. Uh, There might even be jail time involved for these three executives. It's a very interesting case for anyone who's been involved with crypto for a very long time. It also tells you about the long arm of the law. Where are these government agencies going to slap down and when are they going to do it? They're going after one of the older brokerage firms out there with BitMEX. And they don't seem to care that it was years ago. They don't seem to care that BitMEX was basically operating as an entrepreneur within the space. They want to protect what they see as the rule of law. David, I'm going to throw it up to you for your take. Yeah, I actually kind of had a question. So the portion that I read indicated that this was linked to serving U.S. customers illegally. I mean, is this a KYC penalty, basically? Yeah. So I'm seeing you nodding your head. I'm assuming I'm basically right. Yeah. Philosophically, we can get into the weeds and talk about the ins and outs. But I mean, I think it's kind of silly. 
think a lot of people think that these KYC requirements are, you know, not ideal. Like if you want to find Arthur Hayes $30 million for something, find him for offering people 100x leverage. That's the real crime here. That's the thing the man did that has actually harmed people. I think that the point about the long wait for these enforcement actions is really important right now because we go through cycles and every cycle there is a slight variation on an investing promise, a trading practice. Right now it's NFT land sales, which we're talking about as possibly being securities, but they're being sold without those controls. And it might take three or four or five years for enforcement to catch up with those kinds of things as it has here. So people who are engaging in certain practices right now, like lawyers are there for a reason. They're annoying sometimes, and they're going to tell you not to do the thing that you want to do. I hope none of these guys wind up in jail, but it seems possible. So just to be clear, that's because I don't think that they've engaged in the kind of activity that I think is pretty common that I think should go for to jail for, which is offering fake investment promises. But that's a different conversation. So I might chime in really quick, kind of echoing some of what you were saying, David, around enforcement action, taking a little while to catch up with the realities of the space. I think a lot about DeFi, a lot of the lawsuits, a lot of like the, the regulatory action that we see today is targeted more towards these entities that kind of model traditional financial institutions. It's a lot easier to go after people for KYC, not fulfilling KYC requirements regulated mm -hmm. by a government or money laundering, those sorts of things. And even before that, you'd see people getting gone after for stuff like drug payments, easy things. And I think mm -hmm. that regulation and enforcement specifically have a long time to go before they catch up with a lot of these crazier, more difficult to grasp concepts that we're seeing in the DeFi space stuff. Talk about Ponzi schemes, all of those things where there's actually maybe new regulations that need to come up. Yeah, you guys brought up a few interesting points. The thing that really speaks to me most about this story is the fact that BitMEX was first in a lot of ways. The perpetual swap was a product, a financial product that they created, and they're basically given like the, the recognition for that. They were also first in allowing this huge leverage. They're pretty notorious among traders out there for allowing their users to have 100x leverage. And they're well known within like the early crypto circles because they got there first and they offered a product that a lot of people wanted. Sort of just like the basic idea here. At the same time, they ran up against an old piece of legislation, the Bank Secrecy Act that was from the 70s. They got smacked down by it. Take that against something like Coinbase, which grew very slowly, lawyered up, made sure they didn't list tokens that they couldn't defend. And they haven't really had any problems. Like there's been some things here and there, but you know, you're not seeing a Brian Armstrong being uh, taken off to court and uh, taken down for $10 million. That's not happening. What you are seeing is, uh, is that with BitMEX. Another example is Binance, right? They hopped all over the world, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And they got so big so fast that governments almost couldn't knock them down, right? CZ just found a jurisdiction that he could operate in. And there you go. He's got an economy to grow with. And whatever economy he ended up with uh, is pretty happy that he is there. So it's, it's wild to see like the, almost the different iterations of exchanges that have been around for a while and which ones were successful and which ones were not. But I think it's time to talk about Juno, something with a whale and fat fingering an address leading to a, a lot of lost money. Well, we've all read stories about some individual losing a hard drive in a landfill or losing their private keys. But uh, this may be a new one. This is a DeFi system that has lost millions of dollars into essentially a black hole. 
thanks to a typo. And we are lucky enough to have the author of this article, Sam, who has been working hard to report out the story from every angle. And Sam Kessler, you want to walk us through a little bit about what happened here? This just went from bad to worse, huh? Yeah. Thanks, David. As you know, you've also written about Juno and something called Prop 16. This story, it's a saga at this point, has, has been going on for a little while now. And it's kind of crazy to think that it's gotten even crazier. Maybe just to, to back up a little bit and give a broad summary for folks who haven't been following along. Juno is a blockchain in the Cosmos ecosystem. They did an airdrop of tokens to a bunch of people who were staking on the Cosmos Hub blockchain. Cosmos is a multi-chain ecosystem and Cosmos Hub is kind of a chain at the center of that ecosystem. Anyway, they dropped tokens to a bunch of people. One entity person ran away with around 10% of all tokens on Juno, which if you know anything about proof of stake chains like Juno, that gives you, you know, a lot of influence and governance and a bunch of other things. But the problem here was that Juno had tried to make it such that no individual entity would have more than 50,000 Juno tokens. In this case, this one person ran away with over 3 million. The community, um, in a pretty unprecedented move, voted to revoke those tokens to basically go against that whole unalterable ledger idea, revoke those tokens from the whale. That was super controversial. They went through several different votes to do that. We thought that that was a story. It was a story. It was really interesting to follow. And then what happened yesterday or two days ago, the code on chain that was supposed to move those tokens after the vote passed ended up, because of a typo, moving the tokens into, like what I say in the articles, like a crevice of the blockchain where nobody could access them. There was literally a typo in the code that got these tokens suspended somewhere in the ether. And so now a lot of other shenanigans have ensued, but there's lots of questions that we can talk about around who is responsible mm -hmm. for getting these tokens stuck and what's next. They're going to be doing an upgrade, it looks like, to literally kind of fork the blockchain to fix things. But anyway, I think this is an interesting subplot for a lot of these smart contract chains, which are deciding, do we want on-chain governance or do we not? Bitcoin, for the most part, is like, no, we don't want on-chain governance. This is just a mess. Can't do that. If anyone's familiar with the Bit 119 story that's going on right now, that is also a mess, but it doesn't really involve any on-chain governance. There's some other blockchains out there, Ethereum somewhat, and you get things like uh, Polkadot, which has a really heavy on-chain governance, and then things like Juno, which is like micromanaged on-chain governance. And that's where you get some really fascinating political discussions. And you get a lot of lost money. $36 million is nothing to bat an eye at. Any one of us have $36 million, we would not be on the show. We'd be on a beach somewhere enjoying <laughs> life, right? So that is a ton of money to fat finger and lose. And it's going to keep happening. Like this has happened in the past as well. If you go back to Polkadot's history, uh, when they were working with, uh, they're in a firm called Parity Tech at the time, 2017. And they had a wallet that they lost for about $70 million worth of Ether at the time, caused a huge disruption and split in the Ethereum ecosystem. It's still there. It can be somewhat attributed as like a flashpoint for why Polkadot and Ethereum went separate ways and haven't really worked with each other since. There's some other stuff into that story, so I'm, I'm making it too simple. But these on-chain governance mess-ups, and they do happen, they cause these huge disruptions and they cause a lot of lost money. Dave, I'll kick it up to you for your thoughts. Well, I actually wanted to pose this as a question to Tyrone, who has worked a lot on the kind of financial advisory. And, you know, we don't do any financial advice here, but I'm curious sort of at a high level how you think about how something like this impacts the way you value a, an asset. Because this is like you can have these human mistakes or even purely yep. technical mistakes. We see a lot of hacks, too. 
and, and I know that you're, well, I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth, but I gather you're more focused <laughs> on the stable end of the market, things that are more established. But just from a financial perspective, how do you think about, I mean, they're like tail risks, basically. You can have things go very bad very quickly. Well, that's immediately what I thought about. I thought about it from the regulation angle. The more these hacks continue to happen, you just know that this administration is going to come down harder. And I'm already that they're going to, you know, fat finger that, if you will. They're definitely going to go mm-hmm. heavy on the regulation here. So that bothers me. The other side is wealth managers and those dealing with money look at this and say, OK, we never want to take custody. We never want to be responsible for exchanging mm-hmm. assets or have that happen. So I think what wealth managers look at the space evolve. And I think this is what I always tell people when you see events like this, you are literally seeing the future of finance happen in real time. The mistakes, the good, the bad, where if a $36 million trade happens at JP Morgan, they bust a trade. Nobody knows. It's not on hash on TV. And then they just go on with their day. So this is happening in real time, which everyone needs mm. to understand. So it's a gift and a curse with crypto, because when these things happen, it's truly public where these things happen all the time at Deutsche Bank and Merrill Lynch and everything else, you know, and it breaks. It's, it's public. We can see what happened and you have to report on it. And I think the last mm-hmm. part of that is, to your point, David, is there's something called E&O insurance for advisors, right? Errors and omissions. And this is why errors and omissions in insurance for advisors is sky high now, because if that happens to an advisor, career over. It's done. <laughs> there's no coming back. So those are my two Satoshis on it. Yeah, you bring up, this fat fingering does happen in other spaces. I mean, notoriously, I believe it was City just a few months ago that uh, mm-hmm. accidentally repaid a loan for on the order of a few hundred billion dollars that they did not get back. It is important to note that this is not a problem that's exclusive to crypto. Okay, so I think we are going to move on now to our final item of the day, which is pretty significant. We have the U.S. Treasury issuing its first sanctions ever for a Bitcoin mixer. I think any crypto at all mixer, but in this case, it's a, it's a Bitcoin mixer that at least reportedly linked to North Korea and has been used to launder some funds from the Ronin hack. I'm sorry, I probably misspoke. It must not be a Bitcoin mixer if they were laundering ETH, but this is pretty significant. It's a first. We'll talk a little bit about the implications. The association with, with North Korea is interesting, but I think it's also important to remember that these services exist unaffiliated with any nation state, any sanctionable entity. They're just out there. Mixers like Tornado Cash, uh, and and I think some of them are even decentralized. So uh, you're not going to be able to to get rid of these necessarily. But the fact that they're sanctioning one has some interesting implications. Will, what do you think? What do you think of the role of mixers in the ecosystem and what implications this might have? And and particularly, I do want to get to talking about fungibility of tokens and and tracking blacklisting and, and what that gets to. Yeah, totally. And just to confirm what you said, the article does say that this is the first time a crypto mixing service has been added to OFAC's sanctions list. So that's definitely notable. Uh, I think what we've seen, especially with the Ronin hack a few weeks ago, where that $600 million was at least tied in some ways to a North Korean address in the Lazarus group, you're seeing a huge focus from these governments on crypto because they have to, because geopolitical enemies are using crypto. They're using the features of crypto, that censorship resistance, to fund their operations. Some of this money in the past has been tied directly to North Korea's nuclear ambitions using crypto for nuclear ambitions. And that's not a headline anyone in the industry wants to see, but it is necessarily part of the story of Bitcoin and the the story of crypto writ large, that you have censorship-resistant peer-to-peer money that you can use for any purpose. And these mixers are really the focal point. They're like the centralized weak link in all this. 
uh, this a, a blender or a mixer, what essentially happens is that people deposit coins from every different part of the world. They put them in, say, like a purse. You, you jangle the purse, and then everyone can pull out the same amount of coins they had previously, but you end up with a different physical coin. And that is nice for privacy, but it's bad for regulators or government agencies that are going after the bad actors here, and they want to be able to track that money. So, David, to your point about fungibility, Bitcoin has some nice fungibility properties about it. That means that like, you can sort of track UTXOs, which is like really what a Bitcoin is. Uh, you can sort of track those Bitcoins and where they're going in and out, but sometimes it gets a little loopy. And those are things like Ethereum, which is a different blockchain model. and It's a little bit easier to track it. And then you get things like privacy coins, which are able to break the link between the past users and the current user. And you have like this wide spectrum across the board for cryptos. And governments are going to increasingly put pressure on the weak links. I think that's probably Bitcoin and to some degree Ethereum. And then they're going to slowly go the other way and start moving towards some of these privacy coins. And for now, I think it's these mixers. They have to go after the mixers. They have an IP address or they have, they can find the server and they can shut it down. Luckily, I think there's, for privacy advocates like myself, I think there's, there's ways to combat this. You can boot up another mixer pretty trivially at some point. And there's some other services out there like Samurai that enable you to keep your, your coins pretty private. But at the same time, I think we're going to continue to see these headlines. Uh, Tyrone, I want to get your take on this, though, so throwing it up to you. Well, this is just funny to me because the biggest mixer in the world are banks. So, And, and if you mm. look at banks and money being laundered, the greatest way to launder money, right, and the most useful tool in that is the $100 bill. These are facts. So I think this is just interesting to me where crypto just creates this duality of where you stand in your morals, values, and principles. And I keep saying that all it does is shine a light. It's a big disinfectant on everything that is wrong with financial services overall. So it's funny that they would go after this. But if you look at the existing system, they haven't really done a good job of fixing that. So that's really when, when I see these things, that's what really matters to me. And also just really quickly on this point, if you look at Russia, now North Korea, the point that you brought up, Will, about we don't want crypto involved in those headlines, but you also can't stop it the same way folks use cash for nefarious things they're doing with crypto. So if these countries that are obviously oppressive worldwide are using this, then, yeah, they're taking the, the use case that we all love and using it for their own purposes. A couple things just as we're closing up the story that I think we should also talk about really quick. First, I think that this kind of portends another trend that we're going to see around this arms race. Like, uh, Will, I think you mentioned how it's inevitable that these mixers continue coming up. They're pretty trivial to spin up in the grand scheme of things. And this is by no means the only mixer that we're going to see get sanctioned in some way. The main mixer that a lot of hackers seem to be using as a reporter that I see is Tornado Cash. You don't see that on this list, even though it was like a huge part of the North Korean um, strategy, it seemed, with Ronin. So basically, we'll see an arms race of firms like Chainalysis that pop up to make it easier for governments and other institutions to come up and do what they've got to do when it comes to regulating. Time to wrap up. That's a rapping. show for today. Definitely a story to keep watching. These mixing services are not going away. It's Tyrone Ross above me, David Morris over there. Oh, over there. Sam Kessler to my right. Good seeing you guys. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to check out the podcast version, The Hash for Your Ears. It's also pretty good. You get to listen to David Morris's silky voice on a podcast. So it's pretty good stuff. 
And don't forget, consensus is coming up. We have a little bit Ooh, over a month until consensus in Austin. Be there. Absolutely. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com.